Welcome to Holy CV with me, Jamie Franklin. And I'm very pleased to say that after some hiatus, I'm joined once again by Clinton Collister. Clinton, how have you been doing? Well, it's good to be back. I was sorry to miss you. Um, my, my mom's health wasn't well, so I, so I uh, caught a quick flight back to Michigan and, and spent a couple of weeks with her. But but now I'm back. I'm back in the Lydon room of Pusey House, and it, nice. it's good to be talking theology with you once again. Yeah. Well, yeah. And um, Clinton, yeah, obviously I knew about this and uh, my prayers are with you and your family. And to our listeners, do play, please hold Clinton and his his mother and their family um, in in your prayers as well. But it's it's great to be back, and we are picking up on the conversation we were having about the passion and death of Jesus. I think we'd done two. Had we done two previous episodes on this, Clinton? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So we'd been through, and you can look those up. Those are just the previous episodes um, in Holy CV. Um, so we looked about uh, we looked at the uh, problem of sin and the need for justice. We'd gone through a bit about the Old Testament, the types and shadows of um, Christ's passion and death. We talked about what Jesus himself said about his death, and we also talked about the New, Test- New Testament apostolic writings as well, and mainly going through ideas that are in the letters of Saint Paul. Um, and as I say, those are those are all available on the previous two episodes. But now we're really coming into um, the part which I feel most comfortable with. And um, I sort of, I, to be perfectly honest, find most interesting, which mm. is theological reflections on the atonement. So um, not looking necessarily at straightforward kind of just out and out biblical exegesis, but trying to work through uh, what the atonement actually is and how it works and the idea anyway will be to talk about the main kind of headlines, if you like, in church history in terms of what people have said about this. And I'm certain that many of these things will be familiar to our listeners already, or they or they might not be. But we hope to achieve a kind of, um, a, I don't know, some I, I guess you would say a broad coverage of these uh, these central theological reflections on the atonement. We've got about 45 minutes to do it. So uh, it's quite ambitious, but I think we can. I think we can do it. What do you think, Clinton? I think so. We have, we have a good guide. So so yet again, uh, we're, we're not only taking our, our prior knowledge and, and the Holy Scriptures, but we're also looking to this this fine new edition of, of um, Francis J. Hall's Anglican Dogmatics. Yeah. And uh, I, I was looking at that again today, even though obviously you're, you're, you're the man in the driver's seat for this atonement series, but, but yeah, it, he's, he's quite good on the subject. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. To, to what extent were you drawing from that as you were, as you were working through this? Oh yeah, quite, quite a lot. Yeah. So I, so I'm, I'm um, as I say, I'm just looking at five, five main, main theories of the atonement here. And Francis J. Hall's treatment is a lot more, substantive taking Mm. in lots of the theories that were current for his day and um, remain influential today as well so his is much more in depth than than where we're going to go today um in terms of well it's got a broader coverage but nevertheless yeah i mean i was drawing on it i was drawing on it quite a lot and i i think that that book is very very helpful indeed as i said in my uh review which is on um the uh, north american anglican website uh, which you can look up if you're interested. Francis J. Hall's Anglican Dogmatics has just been republished uh, by Neshota House in a very handy two-volume set. The original was 10 volumes, apparently, and it's about the same length as the Summer Theologiae. So it's a condensed version. Um, it's a very, very good edition. So anyway, let's talk a bit of theology here. So since the close of the New Testament, which is where we left it last time, there's been lots of further speculation specifically as to how Christ's death achieves our salvation. So so Christ died on the cross for our sins. That's the that's the basic idea. But how how does that actually work? Why was that necessary? And what did Christ actually do on the cross? If you see what I mean, no, he died on the cross, obviously. But what does that do? What kind of work was he accomplishing? And questions like that. Now, I think it's fair to say that 
Christ himself and the New Testament don't say very much that sort of explicitly answers this question. The question of, for example, um, why was it necessary specifically for Christ to die on a cross to give his life as opposed to giving his life in another way? I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know what you think about that, Clinton, but it seems to me to be a sort of in, in say, the, the writings of the Apostle Paul, if there is an answer, I think it's sort of given, or if there are answers, plural, let's say, I think they're given in sort of nucleic form, and you have to sort of draw them out by implication. Do you think that's a fair comment? I, I, I do think it, it, there, there are a lot of different, like, like you said, types, symbols, prophecies in the Old Testament, and, and also um, images, metaphors and explanations in the new so it's not to totally clear you, you know if, if you were going to explain someone systematically and you were simply skimming through you know how, how you would approach it i think i think um the saints and the theologians were definitely being guided with the holy spirit as um this came to be explained yeah 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 for sure for sure and the other thing I'd say about this, just by way of um, preface, is that I think it's really important to try and understand what's going on in the atonement specifically. And it certainly can aid our devotion and spiritual growth. But I think we also have to remember that all of these things that we're about to talk about, they can only ever offer a partial insight into the mystery of the cross. The reality of Christ's atoning for our sins and what that means, we can only speak about in language which falls short of whatever whatever the reality really is, if that makes sense. So um, we can get part of the way there through talking about theories of the atonement. But these are really kind of, I don't know, the way I think about it is we're approaching a mystery and each of these theories kind of approaches it from a different angle and gives you a, a different kind of elucidation of it but that will only ever be a sort of partial elucidation, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, sorry, have you, you ever read, have you ever read the, the um, Anglo-Saxon poem? Is it called The Dream of the Rude? Yeah, I've never read it. I've, I mean, I've, it's one of those things which I'd have liked to have read, but I've never read it. Sarah was walking, uh, went for a walk in the park with, with a, a poet. I think her name's Tessa Carmen or something, but she, she did a translation of this. In, in the latest issue of the magazine, The Lamp, and we read it last night. But right. speaking of different angles, you know, it's like from the perspective of the tree, of the cross, you know, right. what is Christ doing in, 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 this, uh, in this sacrifice, in this death? And, and uh, it, it's really quite profound. But, yeah, it just shows how, how, how deep, you know, you know, I had never thought about it quite the way that it presented it. And, and uh, yeah, like you said, this is a, a deep mystery that we could reflect on for our whole lives yeah yeah no i mean it's one of those things i will i will at some point read it um yeah so um i've got a quote here from mere christianity by c.s lewis which i've always found to be a helpful quote and uh, interested to get your take on it clinton uh, yes. i promise i promise to our listeners we will get to the theories themselves in a moment so so lewis's quote is this we're told that christ was killed for us that his death has washed out our sins and that by dying, he disabled death itself. That is the formula. That is Christianity. That is what has to be believed. Any theories we build up as to how Christ's death did this are, in my view, quite secondary, mere plans or diagrams to be left alone if they do not help us. And even if they do help us, not to be confused with the thing itself, all of the same, some of these theories are worth looking at. So that's the quote. Um mm. Now, I, the, one of the reasons I include this quote, Clinton, is because um, in my the kind of circles perhaps I was in many years ago in churches, I think that one of these theories, uh, in particular, the kind of um, penal substitutionary atonement theory, was held up as the not only the most important theory, but the actual essence of the gospel itself. Hmm. Um, and... I think over the years, I've come to think that that is um, that is a that well, the, there's there's a problem there. And I think I think C.S. Lewis um, nails it, which is that really what the what the gospel 
writing, well, the, the gospels themselves and, and the writing of the apostles, what they what they give to us is is um, is the message, the central message, which is that Christ died for our sins. You know, he died as a propitiation for our sins or, you know, he, he, he gave himself as a ransom for our for us or, or whatever it might be. It, it doesn't say and you must believe this is specifically what happened when he did that, you know, this like Christ was um, punished specifically for your sin. And, you know, and uh, that propitiates the wrath of God in a particular way or something like that. Um, mm. Now, as I said earlier, you might think and we'll talk about this later. You might think that that's in in that's kind of implicit in, for example, um, the scriptural writings. But that's not that's not the central um, kerygma proclamation of Christianity. It's it's a it's a sort of it's a sort of um, a, a secondary elucidation of things which are which which are contained within scripture in nucleic form. So that's that's I guess where I've got to in that. And that's why I that's why I find the Lewis quite helpful. Yes, I I, I think it's a, a good a good quote and a good um, set of set of points. Uh, and, and truths to focus on, I, you know, obviously, if we believe scripture is true, we're we going to affirm more than simply those three claims about the cross, just because we have more claims than that in scripture. Mm. Yeah. Um, but, but he's extremely good at, at um, honing in on central truths. And, and I think that's a great example of, of that. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, he was, he was, he, you know, he was bruised for our iniquities. You know, he, he, I, I don't know. I, I'm not saying that, that I, I like that he's saying, you know, this doesn't mean you have to take on Calvin's understanding of the atonement in order to be a faithful Christian. And I would agree with that. If that's kind of, do you see what I mean? Yeah. But, 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 um, but, but sometimes I was, so I just read, um, Carl Barth's like one volume uh, dogmatics and outline oh, yeah, over the that, last yeah. couple of weeks. And one thing that kind of bothers me about his approach is sometimes the sort of um, challenging aspects or messiness or, or um, the sort of sacri sacrificial and um, painful aspects of human history and, and the Christian story and, and, uh, salvation sometimes it seems like he does so much kind of ground clearing to focus on christ who and, and what he has accomplished that, that he ignores some of the the narrative um and and and, um, and, and you know the I, uh, if you see what i'm saying i don't think lewis does that you know if you read his mm. oeuvre uh, and 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 um but but i wouldn't want people to see this quote and think that's what he's doing and think that what he's doing is what just just elucidate that slightly what specifically uh so th there are some claims in scripture about the atonement that make us uncomfortable and there are some things about the the way that god has chosen to reveal salvation that make us uncomfortable and, yeah. and i guess he is getting at that that the whole idea of sacrifice you know from um from Genesis through the life of the you know the Israelites to Christ's sacrifice is sort of unsettling to the modern consciousness. It's not how we think. It's not how we understand justice. It's not what we necessarily would imagine when we think of salvation. And I guess he is getting it. He does. He does say that that he gave himself for us and his blood covers our sins and so on. But I wouldn't want to like get away from. The, the more um, difficult uh, passages and difficult claims about what Christ is doing on the cross in, yeah. in simplifying to focus on central truths, which I think he's doing. Uh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah. And of course, all of this stuff will come out more clearly as we talk through uh, these theories. And particularly, I think that notion of um, sacrifice and how we understand the sacrifice of Christ is absolutely central to this conversation. Um, so, yeah, I guess the only thing I was wanting to say with that is that the foregrounding of one of these theories and the absolute insistence upon it as the kind of central proclamation of the faith. I just don't I just don't really buy that. I mean, when mm. I look at scripture, when I look at church history, I just don't think that's you know, I don't think that's the way that the gospel has been understood in its kind of um, 
you know, in its sort of fundamental form, if that makes sense, you know. Right, um, right. What St. Paul means by preaching, preaching Christ and Christ crucified is not necessarily what, you know, a revivalist preacher of the 1800s or yeah, a, you know, yeah. reformed preacher of the 1990s. Yeah. N- necessarily which, meant yeah, in terms which of not, focus. It's, yeah, it's not to say that that's necessarily li- illegitimate. Right. But it is to say that to insist on that as the only way of speaking about the death of Christ and if you don't do that, then you somehow are not preaching the gospel. That's the aspect I find slightly problematic. But uh, but anyway, I think we should talk about the theories themselves, and then I think um, you know this will become clearer. Oh, okay, but 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 you had yeah. my um, yeah sort of uh, over, overly <laughs> broad hedging there in response to that passage. What what do you lo- love about that passage, or, or what in terms of that passage casting okay. light? for you because the more positive take would be helpful as well yeah okay so i think i think the thing that i find helpful about it is that you don't have to somehow work this you don't have to work out specifically what you think about um the you know all the different theories in order to understand in understand to understand the gospel and believe in the gospel the gospel is that christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures as mm. as uh, Christ, as uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that's the that's the essence of the gospel right Paul then doesn't go on and say and you know this is this is uh you know this is the way you should understand that specifically he just right. proclaims that message which is Christ died for your sins um so that you could you could be reconciled to God so that you could know God's forgiveness and so that you could have the hope of eternal life that's the message of the gospel. Now, there are obviously questions that that raises. How does that work? Um, is it a perfectly legitimate question? But I'm saying that that's the thing that we must focus on, um, and that's a, and we must put our faith in in that. You know, in a very simple way. You know, look to Christ on the cross and and believe in Him, and He will save you. You know that that's the message of the gospel. God will save you through Christ. Um, and and that's what I like because it frees you from from thinking. Well, I've got I've got to sort of take on some kind of you know um, theological baggage here in order to understand what that means. You don't you don't need to take on theological baggage in order to understand what that means. Um, the theology is meant to deepen and elucidate the the central message, but it shouldn't distract from the central message itself. So that's the thing I find helpful. All right. Yeah. So if it does that, then that's yes. not good. And that's what we want to avoid here. So um, let's talk about the theory. So five theories. I'm just going to say what they are. So in order, we'll talk about them. So the, the Christus Victor theory or the victory theory, which you could say more easily, the ransom theory, the satisfaction theory, what I call the Abelardian view, um, which is associated with Peter Abelard. And then, of course, penal substitution attainment, which we'll talk about at the end. Um and um, these, I think it's fair to say that these five ways of thinking about the, um, the death of Christ are, at least in the Western tradition, the five most important ways of, of thinking about it, the five most prominent ways of thinking about it. Um, I can't really think of any others which are you know, as significant um, in terms of their historical influence. Um, and... So that's why I picked them, which I hope makes sense. Um, so the first one, Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. The, the basic idea here is that in dying on the cross, Christ, as it were, takes death and all the powers of sin and hell upon himself and takes them into the grave with him and triumphs over them through the resurrection. So it's a kind of victory over those things. Now, it's quite obvious that the New Testament speaks about Christ's death in this way. Uh, For example, Colossians 2.15 says, he disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in him. And even more explicitly in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul quotes, I think it's a quote from Isaiah, um, death where is your stick victory death where is your sting sting and so on you know it's kind of um almost like christ is mocking the power of death uh, through the um through uh, as a result of the resurrection so there's definitely pedigree for this in the new testament the idea that the resurrection is a kind of um a sort of final triumph over the power of sin and death the curse 
of sin and death, which Christ took into himself on the cross. And it's a kind of cosmic victory. The resurrection is a sort of cosmic victory over these things, um, disarming them, uh, rendering them powerless, uh, numbering their days, uh, curtailing their influence and so on and so forth. And I think it's prob- I think it's fair to say that this is probably the major theme that you get in the earlier patristic fathers. I mean, there, there are other themes as well, as we talk about, but certainly in the in the sort of first millennium of Christianity, um, particularly in the earlier centuries, as I say, I think it's probably the major theme or the sort of underlying theme that's behind writing on the atonement. For example, I think Athanasius um, uh, on the incarnation, I think it kind of, um, you know, this is this is the sort of theory or the theme which sort of underlies that work. Um, and so that's the basic theory. The, the thing about this, which I think is interesting, is that it emphasizes the divine power of Christ. So it's very much sort of thinking about Christ as a as as God, you know, so it's 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 a lot of the emphasis here is on the resurrection. It's about Christ's divine power raising him well, by virtue of the fact that he has divine power, Christ being raised from the dead. It doesn't say much about Christ's humanity, really, um, in the way that other theories do. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that later. But it doesn't. The incarnation. Is obviously about Christ being fully God and, and fully man. This theory in itself does not speak to the fact that Christ on the cross was not only fully God, but he was fully man as well. So. Um, so in a sense, it to me, it doesn't seem like it's a sort of comprehensive view of the atonement because it's more of an emphasis on the um, the deity of, of Christ and not very much emphasis on the humanity of Christ. Um, it doesn't emphasize really the suffering, uh, the sort of human suffering of Christ um, in the way that I think certain other theories do, such as the satisfaction theory, which we'll talk about later. Um so I think it's I think it's a I think it's a it's true it's definitely true and it's definitely got biblical pedigree, um, but I think it's an interesting observation to make that it doesn't quite speak fully to the reality of the incarnation. Clinton, what do you think about that last point? And do you have any other comments to make about the victory theory? Well, I, I do think that it it speaks to the incarnation and the the humanity of Christ in a sort of final way so so i guess my one um question would be as as we look at these descriptions of the 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 victory model of the atonement to what extent are they focusing on the the um you know the new heavens and the new earth and and the eternal triumph and and to what extent are are they um engaging with the current situation we find ourselves in so I guess I, I just think about when you read, you know, John Chrysostom's Paschal homily, and, and there's this this sort of, um, you know, celebration of Christ's victory over um, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and yes, we all cheer, and, and and it's true. But then we all still live in this veil of tears, where you know people are get sick, and there's war, and people die, and and they're our trials and, and hardship. And, and, and um, I, I'm not saying that that casts any doubt on the truth of it, but, but um, it, it is interesting to think about. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just, just in terms of uh, the now and not yet of the Christian life and of our salvation and, and um, what are the ways in which this speaks to the, yeah, the, the the pains of life as well. What, yeah. what do you think of that, Father Jamie? Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's a totally legitimate question that the theory raises, isn't it? And it it's um, it speaks to that passage that I quoted, Colossians two fifteen. So speaking about the cross, it says he disarmed the principalities and powers, made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them in him. Now, the thing about one Corinthians fifteen is one Corinthians fifteen is talking about the day of resurrection for all humanity so in that day it will be said oh death where is your victory oh death where is your sting etc it's it's colossians 2 15 is talking about now 
right? So mm. now he has disarmed the principalities and powers. He's triumphed over them. And it would be a completely legitimate thing to ask, I think, which would um, to say, well, in what sense have the principalities and powers been triumphed over? Because they still seem to have quite a lot of sway in this age and in our lives. So I think I think that's a really, really important question. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't really know what the answer to that is, to be honest with you. No, well, um, no, and, and I'm not doubting it in any yeah. ultimate sense. Yeah, um, of course. But, but uh, I, I, one thing I really like about um, talking more about this, this approach to understanding the atonement is that I think a lot of people in our contemporary moment are blind to the sort of um, powers and principalities. Yeah. Uh, angels and demons you know the, the sort of spiritual realm and and i it when you read the fathers on this way of looking at at what happened on the cross there is a like clear understanding that there's this spiritual battle going on yeah and, and i think that's helpful yeah yeah for sure for sure yeah i guess what i meant is um just to clarify there's like there's a there's an eschatological reality that this speaks to which is very clear mm -hmm. it's very easy to understand that that through the through the cross Christ has defeated death and sin and hell and the powers of darkness, but that that is yet to be fully realized and that that will be fully realized in the eschaton. So we still die now. I like this phrase, um, N.T. Wright says that, you know, in the resurrection, the end has become the middle. Um, that's a, to me, that's really helpful. Mm. It's like the, the, end is, the end has come into the middle. And because we've seen the end in the middle, we now know what the end will be. Um, and, the, and that, and that has, and that, what Christ has done is inaugurated the end. So that's, that's really clear. I guess the question, the question is, well, in, in what sense then is, are those powers defeated or bound in the presence? And I guess that's what I was saying. And I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure how to answer that question. Does it, it I mean, I, I suppose one of the, one of the things you might say about it is that now through the power of the resurrection um, through the Holy spirit, and the work of the Holy Spirit in the church, we have power over the dark, the dark forces in a way that we didn't have previously. Yes, um, yes. The, the, you know, the, the apostles went around casting out demons. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, through the the sacraments, we're we're getting a sort of foretaste of that yeah. eternal banquet. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me actually of a passage um, in uh, the book of Ephesians which if I can just look it up, it's the beginning of Ephesians. So when he talks about, where is it? <clears throat> and Paul's praying and he says, you know, what is the, the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe according to the working of his great might, which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul's praying that the, the Ephesians would know the immeasurable greatness of his power, which is working in the church according to his great might, to God's great might, which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And it's, it's not, I mean, it's not necessarily saying this in a sort of straightforward causal sense, but it does seem to be equating the power of the resurrection with the power of God, which is at work in the church now. So I don't know if that's relevant, but it, that, that put me in mind of that passage. Well, I think it's relevant. And I think it relates to the, to the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You know, the, the, the truth there is that even though the church often looks um, chaotic or um, corrupt or misguided, the, the Holy Ghost is working through the church and, and the gates of hell mean that the church is advancing on mm. the realm of, of the devil and we're gaining ground, whether we always see it or not, or whether things look uh, like they're going well in the battle or not. The, the, the truth of the matter is we're going to keep advancing. Mm. Yeah, that, that's good. And do you think, um, here's a question for you. Do you think that the, you know, an emphasis on or a sort of meditation on the uh, Christus Victor view of, of the atonement might lead one towards a kind of more post millennial view of the course of history? And what I mean by that is um, that uh, the post millennial view, which is obviously, I mean, the whole com concept conversation around the millennium is obviously um predicated on interpretation of a certain passage in the book of revelation but the basic idea is that the church will be successful in this age um mm. and that the church will eventually um become 
the prevalent dominant force upon the face of the earth. The majority of people in the earth will be Christians and there will be essentially a global Christian civilization, which will be Christ's way of manifesting his rule um, the power which we've been talking about, which is which has been displayed in the resurrection um, upon the earth. So I don't know. I've, I've only just thought about that during this conversation, but maybe there's a kind of post millennial feel to this. Right. That's a good question. So is, is it like Tolkien says, where we're suffering the long defeat or are, are the faithful ever advancing but, but, but both in the eternal sense, but also in the temporal sphere. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, th- I think I hold a more kind of amillennial um, pr- perspective. And yet I definitely believe that the Christus Victor model is true. So I, I'm not sure. Yeah. If yeah that's yeah. atypical. Um, no, no. I, I, I suppose it just depends on how much you think the, uh, how linked you think um, the, the power of Christ, which is displayed in the resurrection, is sort of how fully manifest that will be in the church in this age. I guess that's that's the question, isn't it? And I don't think I don't think you necessarily have to commit yourself to a, a post millennial view or or the equivalent. So, so yeah. I, I sometimes think about this. I can't remember who who says it, but it's it's odd that if you look at you know Cappadocia, where where the, the great champions of Trinitarian Christianity. Were, were once present you know it, it's sort of a wasteland when it comes to christian faith now yeah um and yet when you look at i don't know china or india or you know all, all yeah. sorts of other um yeah. places the church Africa. is yeah. flourishing you, you yeah. know I, I don't know nigeria yeah. um it, people are coming to christ every day and, and people are lining up to to come receive the sacraments and hear the gospel and and uh and, and so it seems like, at least for the past 2,000 years, it, it, it's like that T.S. Eliot quote about how, you know, there are no permanent victories, you, you know, yeah. th- things can be lost and gained and lost again. And, and uh, but, but um, it, it doesn't, it, so, so it seems like it, it, it varies in terms of region, in terms of nation, and, and, and there are so many factors, but it does seem in general Christianity keeps spreading yeah, yeah, thus far. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think that as well. I mean, I'm not I'm not a post-millennialist, Clinton, and I, I have to say I'm more with Tolkien on this. It's, uh, you know, it seems to me that, um, it seems to me that there isn't really progression in a linear sense, but as you say, there are, there are, there are times when there are victories um, and revivals, and then there are times when there are falling you know, in, in, in particular areas. And then there are times when those areas will fall away or where there'll be a, a receding of the tide, as it were, and then maybe it will build back up again. Um, I, I my, my view is that the return of Christ will, um, will interrupt history in a way yes. which, is, which is unexpected. And it seems to me to be, maybe I'm not doing the post-millennial view justice in saying that, but, but it seems to me that the clear implication of, of what Christ says in the Gospels um, it doesn't seem to me to make sense to say, you know, that the, the son of man will come like a thief in the night when no one's expecting it. If, um, you know, we, we, we can predict with confidence that the church will be so successful in this age that it will essentially take over the world. I, somebody would have to square that for me. I, I'm not sure how that works. I'm not sure either. And, and, but, but I think um, one thing I, I, I do like about, some people I've met who seem, I don't know if, whether they would technically say they were um, post-millennialists or not, but, but you do meet people who have this um, confidence about yeah. um, Christianity yeah. and, and its power to lead well and, and rule well and make for a more just society. And sometimes I think that can be really inspiring. And then sometimes it seems like uh, people can have a too this worldly kind of, um, yeah uh eschatological vision and and they end up just kind of um, baptizing whatever the ideology of the moment is yeah, yeah. And, and claiming that christianity is really uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh doing well or, or, or uh, leading yeah. the way that's so a big I, problem that's a big problem yes yeah. yeah no no i mean i agree with that i think you know douglas wilson he i was talking to yes. someone about this the other day he's a good example of that you know somebody who's a post-millennial very very confident 
um, that the church will will do well, and and it means that he looks, you know, he looks to um, to to be a part of that, you know, in a really really positive way. So, um, but yeah, so there's there's a bit about the um, Christus Victor. Clinton, um, we should move on to the next one because we've only done one of five so far. Um, I think <laughs> yes, please, please go ahead, take we're it away. We have, have another episode on this. I think. Um, okay. I think maybe maybe we can get two more in. So, um, but I really want to do do um, a bit on the satisfaction theory because I think it's really important. But number two is the ransom theory, which again is was a commonly held position in the early church. That it must be said that there were certain theologians who rejected it. Actually, off the top of my head, I can't remember who they were, but. I wonder if one of them was Gregory of um, Nazianzus. I'm not sure about that. Maybe you've, have you got the hall in front of you, Pinton? I don't, uh, I, 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 don't I don't, I don't, I don't okay. have it to yeah. hand. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, but there were at least, there were at least some it's important church fathers who, who didn't like this view. And um, this view um, basically says that the death of Christ is a ransom paid by God to the devil to free mankind from the devil's debt. So we were in, in debt to the devil because of sin it was as though we owed the devil our lives and christ um paid with his life for us and gave himself as a ransom so this is obviously um relatable ostensibly anyway to the sayings of christ in the gospel you know the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many um what does the word ransom mean there who well who's been given as a ransom is obviously christ but when a ransom happens um a payment is made to somebody who has something you know is keeping something uh, is holding something ransom is paid and that person releases that thing now the idea here is that the the one who is being paid the ransom is satan himself and that as a result of christ's um sacrifice satan um releases us from the hold he has over us so um my view about this one clinton and i think that this is a fairly safe thing to say when you take the broad sweep of church history and theological reflection into account is that it really presses that new testament language of of ransom too far and it over literalizes the interpretation um or it over literalizes its own interpretation so it's 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 trying to take that ransom language and apply it in a way which is just not warranted um, by scripture. And also it's not warranted for other reasons as well, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, it, it assumes something which is not said in anywhere in scripture, which is that um, the ransom that Christ pays is paid to Satan. I don't think really scripture says that. I mean, I may be wrong, but I don't I don't see that in in the Bible anywhere. Um, and 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 in even asking that question, well, who is the ransom paid to? It may it may just be not the right question to ask because it's because Christ isn't, you know, he's if, if there was an answer to that question that he wanted us to know, he, he, he may have said it. It's clearly you know, he's clearly using metaphorical language in order to um speak of a reality which transcends our understanding i think also the other thing about this is what it implies about satan which is that satan has some kind of legitimate rights over us that if we sin that somehow that means that satan owns us in a legitimate way now it's certainly true that satan has power over us um and can increase that power we give ourselves over to to the power of satan that's true but it's not a legitimate power um, and this implies that God tricks or bargains with Satan and, and that Satan, in a sense, I suppose, is trustworthy because, you know, Christ gives his life and, and then you're expecting Satan to um, be, do the honorable thing and, and release human beings from the power of sin. Um, so it, it seems to me like the New Testament language doesn't warrant this even though it does speak of ransom um, and what it implies about Satan and, and God and Christ and the, the relationship between them is, uh, is well, it's, it's sort of um, problematic. And the sort of the way I'd summarize this is to say that the cross is not 
probably thought of as a bargain with evil as some kind of you know bargain um some kind of negotiation with evil but it's a triumph over evil it's a it's a it's an annihilation of the power of darkness not a not a kind of negotiating position with it um so that's some reflection there what 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 are your thoughts about that clinton i, I don't know i mean <laughs> maybe i'm thinking of this too too simplistically but i i mean yeah w- when you take it in a sort of transactional sense with um the kind of well-worked-out um, implications of a ransom and an agreement surrounding a ransom that, that you have in mind there. I can see w- why you would say that problems arise. And, and, and I have heard people say that almost like, well, the devil had rights to us, and, uh, and this is how God um, takes the rights back, almost like it's a, a transaction or whatever. But I, I, I mean, I think, think of it... it for for the average person to hear the word ransom, you know, they're thinking of like a movie or something, you know, where yeah. money is given or, or um, a father is searching for his child that was kidnapped and the, the father's very rich. And, you know, if he, if he gives himself to let the kid go or whatever and, and, or, or, or gives this money or whatever, whatever it might be. And to, to my mind, I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which this is true. Right. So, so um, man, sins and, and breaks communion with god and and so uh, instead of living in in this order of love in this um in this communion with the creator disorder um the 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 the, the rule of the the sinful and prideful and even the satanic kind of t- takes takes over gains pr- predominance uh in the world and and so, in a sense, the the sin led to uh, mankind being enslaved or, or a captive, right? Yeah. And, and so, so to my mind, um, you know, th- th- there's a foolishness to or a pride to the sinful. So whether that's um, man or demons that are sinful, there's a pride. And so, if they think they can take this prophet of God or or even god incarnate and and make him suffer torture kill you know who knows maybe there could be some kind of hubris and god's plan does overcome that hubris and so god giving himself in the person of jesus christ in that sense you know like um the the father who who trades himself for the 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 child in a sort of ransom scenario and then manages to overcome the people keeping him ransom uh, you know i don't think there's anything like immoral or or, or um, dishonest about that i think it's more so just uh the, the yet again to go back to the victory of, of good over evil you, you know perhaps the the world and the devil thought that they had thwarted god and and um thwarted christ and instead you know he, he gained this surprising yeah. victory and weakness and 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 through a sort of ransom like activity i don't know does, am, I, am i kind of just recapitulating the thing you've rejected or, or does that seem like a fair take on the, the ransom idea uh, yeah yeah i mean i think the thing i have problem with here is the idea that satan would release human beings from his power upon the death of christ that there's a kind hmm. of bargain between satan and christ now i can oh, see okay so that's not what i'm defending okay that, yeah. That, yeah that makes sense yeah so. no i can see i can see that um i can see the 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 death and resurrection of christ as a as a um as an outmaneuvering of satan yeah you know, in, in in very much um you know you see this is illustrated i think brilliantly in the lord of the rings you know the way that sauron trains his eye upon the armies of Aragorn and he doesn't realize that the the real threat is the hobbits you know yes. because he's because he's proud and that's that's his undoing and that's that's like that's like satan isn't it like satan right. realized that through crucifying christ you know he would he was he was um by eliminate by trying to eliminate him and and diminish him to to the greatest point of weakness and degradation possible he didn't realize that that was just playing into god's hands so in that sense i think um that makes sense but i think all i'm saying is that when you analyze it in a kind of transactional way yes where there's a kind of bargain involved and 
I mean, apart from anything else, it doesn't. No, I don't. Th- I don't think God ever made the bargain with no. with, with Satan. So, so yeah. yeah, on that level, I think the metaphor breaks down. I, that that makes sense. Yeah. The, um, the other thing I was going to ask is, you know, um, the line in the Witch in the Wardrobe, the line the Witch in the Wardrobe, the C.S. Lewis yes. um, Narnia second book in Narnia series. I just read that recently with my children, and it occurs to me that the 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 sacrifice of Aslan on the stone table is a, is actually an illustration of the ransom theory because it's a it's a pact that he makes with the the white witch in order mm. to free Edmund, isn't it? It's like I will give my life if you let him go, and that's that's essentially what the ransom theory is. I, I, I just I just I just thought of that. Well, and I, and I when when you think of what's going on with Judas, in a sense, you, you know, I, I imagine there's some sort of demonic component to his rebellion and, and betrayal and so on and and jesus accepts the kiss you know it's 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 a, it's fascinating mm. on, a, on a sort of um literary level i'm not saying um he's in any way responsible for what happens but he does seem to know what's happening in this yeah. in this um betrayal and and yet he he sacrifices himself he gives himself up and he could have at any point called down an army he could have let Peter and the disciples fight to protect him. You, you know, I mean, it, it, it is interesting. He does willingly give himself up. Yeah, and and people there would have been thinking, well, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? Why didn't you? Why didn't you fight? Why didn't you resist? Yeah, they they but, couldn't understand. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I think that's good actually, and I think that kind of that sense of God's plan being outworked in a way which was mysterious at the time, but which proved ultimately triumphant i think that is a good thing to draw out of this actually so that's that's helpful um Pinson, we've so we 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 said we were going to go until the time which is in four minutes time we could yes. do another 10 minutes and do the satisfaction theory as well but it's a it's a big one and there's a lot to say about it or we could just hold it over and do the last three next time what do you think we should do we we only hit two of them this time We've only got two out of five, but we did the intro as well. So we could, we could, we could, um, we could pause it there and then do another episode on the final three. Um, or we could do the satisfaction theory now in about 10 minutes. I, I say go for it. Okay. Cause yeah. you, you know, we're, we're, we're three episodes in keep, keep marching and uh, okay, okay, let's I'll, I'll, tr- I'll try not to sidetrack us this time. No, 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 no. Your comments are really good. And we could always continue this, uh, you know, if we want to say more about satisfaction next time. So I mean, this, uh, this theory is commonly associated with St. Anselm as 11th century um, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury and his great work, Curdes Homo, why did God become man? Which is, you know, it's one of the most important theological texts in, in, in Western, um, in Western theology, probably I would say in all the theology, actually, it's a great, great work. It's, it's readable. And um, it's just, it's a work of, it's a work of spiritual and theological insight um, and genius, I think personally. Um, And I recommend anyone who's listening to this who hasn't read it to read it. Um, But basically uh, the, the, the central comment, the central question, which is the title says it all, why did God become man more tersely? Why the God man? Why, why did God become man? What was the reason for that? Um, the answer is essentially this, that um, mankind's sin against God incurred a debt to God that only God could pay. Only God had the resources to pay mankind's debt. But mankind's sin must be paid by a representative of mankind. Therefore, only a man who was also God could pay our sin. That's essentially the argument. So God had the resources to pay our sin, but God was not a man. Um, it, it needed a man or a representative of mankind who must be a man in order to, to pay the debt. And therefore you need a man who is also God. And that's the reason for the incarnation. Now, by the way, this isn't saying this is the only reason for the incarnation. This is, um, a sort of atonement orientated answer to the question. So if only a man had offered himself, he wouldn't have had the resources within himself in terms of his life to have offered a sacrifice which was of sufficient value. If God, only God had offered himself, he would not be representing mankind. You need both. You need a man who is also God in order to do it. So that's the basic argument. Now, one of the things that I think is so 
central about this, and I do think you find something of this reflected in the Anglican tradition, is that um, it's the value of Christ's entire life that's offered to God here. It's not just his death on the cross, although that is part of it, but it's it's the it's the it's the purity, it's the it's the goodness, it's the holiness of his entire life, which is which which is offered to God and culminates in the death of in the death on the cross. And I think you can see this in reflected in, as I was saying earlier, in the litany of the Book of Common Prayer. So the litany of the the Book of Common Prayer doesn't just talk about being delivered through Christ's death, but through Christ, the whole of Christ's life. So it says, by the mystery of thy holy incarnation, by thy holy nativity and circumcision, by thy baptism, fasting and temptation, good Lord, deliver us. And then it goes on to say as well, by thine agony and bloody sweat, by thy cross and passion, by thy precious death and burial, by thy glorious resurrection and ascension, and by the coming of the Holy Ghost, good Lord, deliver us. So there's that full sweep of the story of the atonement, uh, pardon me, the story of the incarnation. And it's all of that stuff that delivers us. And I think that the satisfaction theory accounts for that because it's saying it's, it's, it is the death of Christ, which is precious and is, is something which is offered to God. But it's, it's as a culmination of the entirety of Christ's life, which is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of you know, leaving Christ's throne in heaven, becoming a man, uh, be, not, not taking the form of God as something to be grasped, as St. As, as Paul says in Philippians 2, becoming obedient to the, to, even to death, even to death on a cross and so on and so forth. So it's his whole life which is given as a sacrifice, which culminates in in his death in his offering of his death um and the way i've heard this articulated is that this is a therefore a gift which exceeds every debt now our debt is very great before god for sin but the life of christ is of such value that that exceeds the debt of sin that we owe to god it's more precious it's of greater weight it's a greater it's a, of greater substance than our sin and that's what's offered to God in Christ's death on the cross. And clearly, the implication of what I've already said is that this theory accounts for the incarnation's divine and human aspects. It's, it tells us what the link is between the incarnation and the cross, that we need both of these things, the divine in order to have the, the resources to offer a a gift which exceeds every debt, but also to be a, a representative of mankind. So it so it accounts for the the incarnation. It, it provides the link between the incarnation and the atonement. Um, and so I'm not saying that that necessarily means that this is a comprehensive view of what the cross is. I've already said that I don't think that these series do that. I don't think that's what they're for. But I think in terms of understanding how the cross relates to the incarnation itself and to the rest of Christ's life so that Christ's death isn't just a sort of, you know, or, or in other words, sorry, another way of saying this would be to say it avoids you just thinking of Christ's life as a kind of prelude to the cross, which is not necessarily related. You know, Christ went around doing some good stuff and, and doing some good teaching and things like that. But really, it's all about the death on the cross. It links the whole of the incarnation, including Jesus' early life, his his ministry, and so on and so forth to his death on the cross. And therefore it gives you a kind of full sweep of the whole thing. And it's not, it's not imbalanced in any sense. So you can see Clinton, I'm a fan of this, this theory. Um, I think it's very helpful and I'm interested to know what your reflections are. Well, I like what you're saying about how it links his death to, to the incarnation and his whole life. Um, because I think one could, um, Think think about the, the 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 saying that we are to preach Christ and Him crucified, and then go about giving a sort of simplistic explanation of Christianity to people, in which everything is collapsed into the crucifixion, in which yeah. um, the the incarnation, the resurrection, Christ's um, teachings, his his way of life, his friendships, his example, uh, his 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 character. Um, these things all kind of fade into the background. And the only thing that that is really focused on is, is the crucifixion. I think that would be, that would be a huge mistake. Um, And and so I I like how you're tying the whole, the whole of his life into 
what what um what happened culminates in his, his um crucifixion um yeah so 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 that 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 gives a whole whole new um meaning to preaching christ and him crucified yeah. I, I think that's good and and i love you know like you're saying the, the real the real problem that we're dealing with is god and man are separated because yeah. of because of the fall and sin and jesus in himself um unites god and man yeah. but then somehow this has to be communicated to all of us and and so this really deals with with that yeah in a yeah. profound way yeah i i, I really think it does it, it it speaks to that you know ontological aspect of the gospel if you want to put it like that you know that in the incarnation there's an ontological union of of humanity and divinity mm-hmm. and that that's that's an essential part of the gospel you know it's about it's about um what's the eastern orthodox word um divinization. Yeah, yeah yeah divinization that's what i was trying to think of it's about that isn't it but that that is linked to the to the atonement through this through this theory because it's saying it's not just about god and man becoming one in the incarnation it's about that it's about us being drawn into that union through the the life death and resurrection of jesus christ and that's what's that's what's so that's what's so helpful about this is that as you say it communicates that ontological reality of the incarnation to us as well it means that we can participate in it as well hmm. yeah so it's a good one yes and uh, i think that's, yeah absolutely crucial and i think we should leave it there then Clinton, because we've been going we've been going slightly <laughs> beyond our time so, sounds good and i like that you worked the uh the litany in uh and um i was thinking we should end this series by by reading the the comfortable words out so so maybe you can do that at the end of the, the final episode oh, yeah yeah for sure we, sh- we could do that that'd be really really good um yeah and you have to see that this in the litany here it's totally it's totally intentional as well you know by thy by the mystery of thy holy incarnation by thy nativity and circumcision like how does the circumcision of christ deliver us you know you've got to i mean you've got to ask yourself they're, they're doing it you know this is this is completely intentional it's yes. it's it's, to, it's really it's really really deep theology to pray you know that you would be delivered specifically by christ nativity circumcision baptism fasting and temptation all of it delivers us and is communicated to us ultimately through the cross as the the culmination of Christ's sacrifice. And I think that's what's so deep about it. And I do, I do think that relates to that, that passage in Philippians two, where it talks about Christ's halt, the sweep of the incarnation as a, as a sacrifice, mm-hmm. um, or at least it implies that, you know, the emptying of Christ and so on and so forth. It's not just on the cross, but it's whole, his whole life. Anyway, let's, um, let's leave it there, Clinton. And yes. uh, so we'll do another one soon. And we'll finish off with the Abelardian view and uh, the penal, uh, conversation about penal substitution. Um, I don't know, it, since we're only doing two next time, it might be, I don't know, if, should we ask people to like, write in with questions or comments? Oh, that's a good idea. Definitely. Yeah, I, I want, I'm, I'm hoping this summer we can make it a more regular, you know, back to our old twice a month kind of kind of yeah. thing. That, that would be great. And, yeah. and so if people want to yeah, write in with questions about this or about other things, um, the, the, you can email us. Uh, holycv at gmail.com um, you can also follow us or, or uh, give us comments at um, holycv1 on twitter father jamie it's been a while is that right yeah yeah so the the, the twitter is holycv1 because we needed to put the one on because it was already taken right okay and yes. then and then holycv at gmail.com was not taken so yes that's right isn't it, it, it that, that sounds correct yeah and yeah yeah you know i i um i think it would be good we might be able to at one point i was emailing with the editor who put out this new book of hall so maybe we can try to line him coming up uh, him coming on sometime in the soon that i think that would be a good follow-up to this oh yeah series. that's uh, is that john porter is that his name? yes i think so yes yeah that would be very good wouldn't it yeah yeah, it is. I've just checked. It is holycv1 at Twitter. So our Gmail is definitely holycv at gmail.com. So, yeah. So email us comments and questions. And uh, I think that the um, I think the next episode will be good as well, because I think we'll have a lot to talk about specifically about the um, penal substitution, because that's that's an interesting that's an interesting question. Yeah. 
So, Clinton, let's leave it there, shall we? And um, say thanks to everyone for listening. And yes. look forward to being with you again next time. It's been a pleasure, Father Jamie, and everyone. Yeah, thanks, thanks for tuning in. Okay, bye now. <laughs>